0: This is an interview with Mighty full guitarist Nick DeSimone on Sunday, May 2nd, 2021, by Nick Perto. Now, Nick, tell me about getting your first guitar, and were you involved in any music lessons or private tutors?
1: Um, I was, yeah. When I, w- I started playing guitar when I was about 13, I guess it would have been, and, um, you know, I, I'm like the only musician in my family, it's pretty, it was kind of out of nowhere for them, probably, <laughs> but, uh. I got my first guitar right about then. My my folks were, you know, very supportive of it. So they, they kind of they told me basically, first guitar and lessons are on us, and uh, everything else. You know, you want to get other, you want to get more stuff. You want to do whatever you want to do. You got to get a job, whatever. So that was that. Um, yeah, first guitar was a old uh, mom and pop music store acoustic. It was kind of a hunk of crap. Not really that good. Um, so I, I, I dashed on that for a little while and, um, got a job washing dishes and, you know, bought an electric guitar from there. And that was, that was, it was pretty, it, it, it made sense. All my friends were starting to kind of join start bands and play instruments and I felt a little left out. So that kind of was natural, I guess for me, cause there were always just like a lot of guys to jam with right about then when I was maybe that age and, yeah, I had a cool guitar teacher who kind of like understood where I was at, and uh, his name is Ian. I'm not sure if he's still at it or not, but uh, you know, he was really cool and and put it all together in a way that like made sense for me, which um you know I'm definitely very thankful for because I think he kind of like set the wheels in motion for me to you know know how to do the things that I do now, which is great. I was I took lessons for probably about I don't know three years maybe. And then I kind of felt like I'd gotten what I wanted to get out of it, and and that was that.
0: What was it like cutting your teeth as a musician in the Rhode Island area, dealing with all the creative people from your show promoters, booking agents, zinesters, radio, and podcasting community?
1: Well, there's Rhode Island is, is you know it's a small city, but this is a great Providence, especially is such a great um, you know it's an art city. We we are you know there's Rhode Island School of Design is over here. Um, you know, there's just such a, a great arts community in this area. So there's always, when I was younger, there was, especially you know, a lot of those clubs have closed down over the years, but, you know, there's always places to play and there's always kind of like people to jam with. God, I picked up bass on a whim, like not too long into playing and I got so many gigs just by being available and interested in doing that. So there was, you know, I've, I've played everything from, you know, death metal to jangly indie rock and, and, and pretty much everything in between. So I've definitely been around the block because there is so much diversity in, in this kind of community. One of the first places that I was I was actually able to play as an underage person back then was an art gallery. So, you know, the art, that kind of art, you know, visual art and music and, and all these different kinds of mediums all sort of come together and everybody hangs out, you know. Yeah, I, we're, I, we're very fortunate to be in that kind of that kind of community. And everybody, you know, I, maybe it wasn't always true that everybody was, like, very supportive of one another, but I think, you know, especially in more recent years, like, you know, I still hang out with guys that I played shows with 10 years, 15 years ago. You know, it, it's definitely still a pretty tight-knit bunch of guys and there's always familiar faces even though you know new folks will kind of come in but there's like a lot of familiar faces too so
0: you know we're lucky to to
1: have what we have here
0: now tell me the history of the muddy fall with forming the lineup so so you
1: know i'm actually uh i was kind of a surprise to those guys um i basically was at the time that we started Um, I was, you know, out in your neck of the woods, uh, actually, as you know. And I was basically, I'd gotten offered to uh, come and play guitar for my buddy's um, solo. My friend is a solo artist and he needed a guitar player. And he kind of would like put, you know, put these bands together. Uh, So, you know, he needed uh, some guy for a tour and I kind of told him, okay, well, yes, I'll do it. But um, my stipulation is I want to pick the drummer. So my, the drummer in mighty fall is my one of my oldest friends uh his name is zach caruso he's a drummer that i've been playing with since we were kids we were in our first band together so we're in we're you know very good friends it's been a long time now and um you know he hadn't really been playing a lot of drums for a couple of years there so i you know i was sort of getting caught up in day job land at that point so when that offer came up i got in touch with him and we went and, uh, you know, when I tell you it was like a uh, <laughs> like a dirt floor tour, uh, you know, I'm I'm saying we hitched a, a trailer to the back of my car, my my uh, my sedan, and you know, trucked around the country for a month, and you know, so that was pretty cool. So he had uh, just started jamming with 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 all the guys like right before that. So he, you know, as he kind of tells it, he sort of like joined this band, and then he's like, all right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bail for a month. I'll see you guys. Um, so when he came back, you know, we kind of fast forward a little bit, fast forward, maybe six, eight months. I was just back in town visiting, hanging out for Christmas and, you know, I hung out and jammed with them. Uh, He invited me down and, and, you know, I thought it was cool. I thought it was like a neat, the uh, early material was kind of still getting like, it was most of the way there, but it was still kind of getting fleshed out. I haven't even released yet. And I thought it was neat enough. And, you know, he'd kind of been joking with me like, ah, you know, you should join my band. Like, well, you know. I don't exactly want to do another like kind of remote band thing, but basically long story short um, things kind of fell into place where I was like, all right, well, I'm, you know, I'm bailing on New York. I'm I'm coming back to to Providence. And I just sort of told him, and mind you, I had met these guys once before that, the other guys in the band. Um, And we had hung out for a couple of hours. You know, I hung out with them while they were jamming their set. And then we were just kind of like, Hey, you know, do you want to play some Pantera? (laughs) <laughs> and that was kinda of like about about the extent of it, you know, where like me and uh our, our bass player, his name is also Zach, we had a, a real like stepbrothers moment of like, You wanna do karate in the garage? And we just become best friends, like, yeah, we're pushing Pantera. So, you know, jamming a little bit. So I, I pretty much texted drummer Zach and told him, Hey, listen, I'm I'm coming back in a month. I'm joining your band. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, I'm joining your band. So I wouldn't have taken no for an answer. Pretty much regardless. So yeah, that was that was about it. Yeah.
0: What have been some valuable lessons you learned working in music promotion that you use to work with your band?
1: Um,
0: that's a good question.
1: I think the, the main thing, the biggest thing for sure, is basically making sure that your band has has a, a you know a voice. Not kind of when you're putting things out in the world. Not having these sort of you know canned messages and engaging with people and, and making sure that you know the things that you say are eye-catching and I don't, I don't I don't necessarily mean that in like a an edgy kind of way or anything like that I mean you know you know having a having a distinct voice having a sense of humor you know we do uh, my favorite thing to do is I'll do these really Mickey Mouse like Photoshop edits of things on my phone and we'll post those as promotion and we'll just be like kind of you know, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheekness to all of it, and that, that I think um, you know definitely helps a lot. I think just getting people's attention and not being too uh, too dry and too diplomatic has really uh, you know served us well. Having having merch items that are that are eye-catching, you know, we sold hot sauce um, a couple of times now, and that, that's always good. You know, just just doing things that are going to sort of turn heads in a way that people go, "Oh, that's interesting," is going to get you a lot further than like. Obviously, okay. Obviously, the songs are important, but it's all—it is all about how you deliver them, and it's about putting on a really good show, and just giving people stuff to talk about. You know what I mean? That's, I think, the most important thing that I took away from from being a promoter as I, as I used to be.
0: Why did you name your EP "Look the Part," and what is the meaning behind that?
1: Um, so, "Look the Part" was that was my idea. Um, a lot of our, actually, the, our former singer who is no longer in the band, but, uh, you know, a lot of his lyrics kind of at the time were sort of centering around mental health in a way that was, uh, you know, the, the theme that sort of ran through a lot of it was like keeping it together, you know, sort of putting on a face so you can be a person. So I just thought, you know, look, look the part is also just a, I thought it was a cool name for a hardcore record, but it also makes sense in that sense where it kind of ties into that theme of sort of like putting on a face. Like if you, uh, if you, the, the image of the, the, the cover is a little distorted, but it's like a you're sort of yanking his face off, you know, so it's, it's, it's a little on the nose. It's not exactly that, that great a metaphor, but it's, you know, we, we, we like to be a little straight ahead too sometimes. So that's, that's pretty much the gist there.
0: For this collection of songs for "Look the Part," what was it like for your band composing the music?
1: When I joined the band, um, the guts of the music was like mostly done. Um, our lead guitar player Andrew wrote a lot of that material. You know, that was his baby, sort of before I came into the picture. Um, the stuff that we're doing now, so just so you're aware, to, we're you know in the middle of recording a record right now. That's a lot different. So, Look the Part, it's, it's almost funny for me to, like, sort of talk about Look the Part because it's, at this point, we're so far removed from it. You know, we recorded it and sat on it for almost a year before we even put it out, and then there was a, all the writing up until then. So, it's, we're so far removed from that record. Um, but basically, back then, yeah, that was, it was sort of Andrew's Baby before I, I kind of came into it, and, the, you know, it was, the, the, the structures were, were pretty much there. Um, my role essentially became like massaging it into having a vibe because those, all the songs on the part are, in my opinion, they're all kind of, they're pretty different. They could all sort of be songs from a different band. So I think my role in that point was, I added a couple parts here and there. There was a little bit of stuff that was me, but I think my role was mainly tying it all together in like a vibe and you know, parts and playing and, and like, I we always kind of like joke. It's like, you know, Andrew's the finance guy. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, the flash, you know? So it's like the, the vibe versus the, the skeleton of it where we're at right now is a lot more collaborative, which I think is really cool. We are very like open to try stuff. We kind of our, our rule in songwriting now is basically nothing gets, nothing gets thrown out until we try so we'll try stuff and maybe say like, yeah, I'm not really crazy about that, but we'll give it a shot. And we'll, you know, we demo things uh, pretty comprehensively too. So it's, it's, you know, if it doesn't work, there's no point in forcing it. We want just everything to be killer. You know, every riff should be the money riff. Every part should be, you know, no filler whatsoever. You know, we'll try things and we'll bounce things back and forth and, and uh, Andrew and I work together too. So we'll kind of talk these things over. You know, I write a lot of the lyrics, that's the only thing that's like not particularly collaborative anymore is you know, pretty much immediately after Look the Part, and, and I pretty much took over writing the lyrics. Um, but musically speaking, you know, it, it's, it's pretty damn close to a 50-50 when you factor in, um, even if, like let's say, for example, maybe on, on a particular tune I wrote most of the riffs, um, Andrew job then becomes a lot of the arranging. A couple of us kind of take the reins, Um, We always try to have, you know, the the rhythm section in the room, too, because even if they don't necessarily have parts to add, then at the very least, you know, there's extra people in the room to go, hey, is this any good?
0: Now, as you were writing Look the Part, what did you find were your most listened to albums?
1: I was kind of like bouncing around, I think, at that point. Um, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always pretty much always listening to like Every Time I Die and Norma Jean and Converge and those types of bands, those sorts of like, you know, noisy, hardcore sorts of bands. Dillinger Escape Plan, I love them, you know, Um, a lot of that sort of stuff. I think at that point, a lot of those types of tunes, I think I was just sort of biding my time for the, uh, you know, the vibe in the band to change a little bit and kind of just waiting it out. So I was like listening to a lot more probably kind of chaotic stuff at the time. Um, you know, which if you listen to Look the part, you're not going to hear a whole lot of that. But where we've sort of ended up is a little closer to that ballpark. Um, it's sort of tough to say. It's like hard to remember because that was that was a little while ago. I was definitely like listening to more extreme stuff where right now, it's like, you know, it's, it's funny as the music as the music that we're making has got gotten, gotten more kind of gnarly and chaotic. And, and you know, there's elements of, of more extreme stuff sort of creeping in but there's always hooks and there's always like you know you can you can hum it back right it's not just a blur of garbage which don't get me wrong you know I'm a, I'm a grind guy and, and, and all that sort of stuff at heart but I think having memorable parts is like so important so you know now I think really a lot of what I you know as, as the music gets heavier I'm, I'm just listening to like Stone Rock and, like, Desert stuff and Caius and Corrosion Conformity and all that sort of stuff more so now. So it's, it's always, like, I just feel like where, where I'm at as a person who makes music is at least, like, sort of maybe a little bit further away from what I'm actually listening to because you just got to get a break from it, you know what I mean?
0: Can you give me a description about some of the instruments you used and what kind of programs did you use to edit Look the Part?
1: How, how nerdy would you like to get?
0: I don't know, on a scale from... One to ten, I guess nine.
1: Okay,
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Um, okay, so look, the part was
1: um, look, the part was recorded in a way that was like pretty. I, I you know, for time and budget concerns at that point, um, look, the part was like very lean and utilitarian, um, and I think we really, in in some ways, I wish it had turned out differently. But it's also, you know, it's a learning experience when these sorts of things, you know, you make a record, you shouldn't be repeating yourself. You gotta, like, you know, every record should be a learning experience. So, you know, our the, the guy who we worked with, his name is Brad, and he is great. And he really taught us a lot, and he definitely did his best with the time and the budget that we gave him. Um, as far as how to kind of get certain sounds, you know, we also learned what we like and what we don't like by doing that. In a way that was, you know, I've been doing like sort of zero budget DIY recording for a long time now, and I never really had much of an excuse to get better at it, which is why this, you know, we took a lot of what we learned there, and the record that we're working on now is being done in my basement, actually, which is pretty great. So, you know, it kind of cuts down on the budget and the time issues where we can experiment and not worry about burning money and really, really take our time and nail the vibe. Um, now and looked the part. We basically set the room up. There was a tracking room in the studio that was like just full of amps and stuff. And uh, basically what, what Brad ended up doing is he put amps on each side to kind of like approximate the stereo space of like a live show essentially. So, you know, so the, the amps that weren't on, were not on were catching a little bleed from the ones that were, And it was kind of just like to sort of fill out the space a little bit. So I have been an ESP guy for a long time. So I played a bunch of like ESP guitars. I really did most of my tracking with like two guitars. My old Jet City amp. I had an orange cabinet. We did most of our tracking with that amp. And then a Blackstar amplifier that Brad had in the studio. We rolled in with a lot more stuff than we actually ended up using, which is funny because... We're doing the opposite of that now with an absolute banana of guitars at my house and amps and sounds and, and all these sorts of things that we're like experimenting really, really heavily with and, you know, just trying different stuff and whatever works works and what does and doesn't, but you know, with the part was done, I think Andrew used a bunch more guitars than I did, but I pretty much did two, two guitars up the middle. I did all the rhythms with, with a, like essentially a Les Paul and I did my leads with a Telecaster, and we did, uh, you know, Andrew did, he likes his whammy bars, so he had a bunch of different guitars for different tunings and stuff, and and we kind of had to just sort of figure it out. You know, everything was just like a a couple of guitars, a couple of amps. I think we used some old Fender amp for some clean sounds on on the song Water's Edge. There was a really old, solid state Fender combo that was, I thought we thought sounded cool. So we did that. And, um, I just kind of like dialed in a bunch of like weird reverb sounds on, on an old line six pod. And we kind of like went for it. Um, didn't really spend a lot of time fine tuning as far as the sounds. It was just kind of like, okay, this is pretty cool. Uh, you know, we went in and did some overdubs later on with like some old pedals that Brad had, you know, he had like an old boss heavy metal, which, you know, if you're familiar with those, that's like the classic Swedish death metal sound. And, uh, you know, although these tunes are a little more melodic and up the middle, I want to think they had a little of that in there. So they're just dubs of like literally just filthy, gnarly feedback that kind of like dip in and out here and there. I want to do some of that. So we, we kind of just, you know, pieced it together in a pretty in a pretty lean kind of way. I'm like, all right, we're not messing with the sounds every time it's got the same rhythm tone you know it's just kind of like the the basics we went nice and 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 straightforward whereas you know now uh you know there's pedals on pedals on pedals i got probably a dozen fuzz pedals that we're picking through i got weird stuff i got on the internet you know we've got all of my guitars we've got all of andrew's guitars we're trying all different stuff we got gibson's we got some esps we got some music man guitars we got Andrew really likes Schecter. We've got, you know, I've got all kinds. I found, an, I just got an old Frankenstein, the old Dimebag Daryl signature amp, uh, just showed up a couple weeks ago. And that ended up being, that's been the sleeper hit of the session so far. There's, I got an old, uh, I got this Marshall copy that's really fancy sounding. You know, we, we've been really uh, enjoying the, the fact that we have no timetable and we're just going completely nuts. You know, the, the, the difference is definitely pretty big, but yeah, look, the part was look, the part was an exercise in doing a lot with a little, and I'm, unfortunately the budget shows a little bit. Um, I, I'm very proud of how much we got done in just a few days uh, with that one. And, 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 and how it sounds now, I, you know, yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting sounding record. And it was, it was a fun time. We recorded in the church. <laughs> Brad's uh, recording space was the annex building of a church. So we would, uh, it was the middle of winter. It was so cold and we would just go walk, uh, walk down the street and eat uh, grape leaves at the Mediterranean place and then freeze our asses off on the way back in there. And uh, you know, you'd have to go into the church to go to the bathroom it was so creepy being there at night that I would just go and be outside. <laughs> so we, you know, it was definitely like a fun time because we, we were just living there for like, I think about five days. And then a couple of weeks later, we went back for just like a pickup day to do some overdubs. And that was that. Um, but it was fun because we were just all just hanging out, just having a good time, just drinking Red Bulls and eating grape leaves and, and hanging out and, and, you know, it was even though it was a short timetable, it was like very lax because Brad's got a good way about him. So we were, we were all just joking and laughing. And the thing that he would always say is, you know, we'd fluff a take and 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 he'd go, "Don't be sorry, be better." And that was my just so funny. We you know we we still all say that to each other to this day, just like how about you don't be sorry and be better instead. So yeah, anyway, that's 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 the look the part uh, uh, recording experience for you.
0: Listening to the album now, what song are you most proud of and why?
1: Oh, man. Okay. This is... That's a tough one. Um, I'm i am proud of them all for different reasons. I'm proud of the song... Uh, I'm proud of the song Water's Edge because it really... That song went through a lot of change from... Where I heard it when I joined the band versus where it ended up, um, you know, particularly vocally, you know, our, our our former singer and I kind of like had to come together on that one and fix it because it was, uh, you know, <laughs> that song was a dog when we first got started. It was like a very strange bunch of lyrics, and I think you know, we massaged it into something that wouldn't be ridiculous to play a bunch of times, you know, um, I'm very proud of the song "Legends of Tyrants because I am, I'm a good time guitar player. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rhythm guy at heart. I can do other stuff, but I want to chunk on cool. I'm, you know, the, the riff is king. You know what I mean? I'm, I come from music where the riff is, is everything, right? You know, it's like, if you, if you took the solos out of Black Sabbath, um, you know, what would you have? You'd still have a great riff. You'd have a great song. So, you know, that sort of stuff is, is really important to me. But that song is cool because it has a big dueling lead guitar section in it
0: where Andrew did
1: his part. And you and it's, it's great, too, because when you listen to that song, you can really hear the differences between us, which I think is so fun. You know, he's playing his, like, super strat guitars, and he's, like, got his wah, and it's kind of like... Hamity, he's picking everything you know he's doing these like these kind of like scalar runs where it's like all picked and then i came in and i had my crappy telecaster with like strings that were three times as heavy as they should have been on it just like doing just doing chicken picking and it's fun you know the differences are are very fun where it's like you know he he is uh i would say he kind of like approaches playing like he's going for a high score or like he's doing long distance, <laughs> And then, I, you know, I play, I play leads like I'm drunk, uh, which I usually, <laughs> if we're at a show. I usually am, but you know, it's just the difference of like these, t- very, this, these sort of tight calculated runs versus like nice big loose, like sort of, I'm coming from like a, you know, the, the, the dime bag school of like big wide vibrato and, and, and just stuff that's like kind of like fun. Um, so we're, we're, I think it's a great showcase of how not only how different we are as players, but how well we come together, which is always great. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I think I'm fortunate to be in a a band with somebody who is, who has like technical skill on a level that's very different from me. And uh, yeah, I think we learn a lot from each other all the time, which is really awesome. Like, you know, he's taught me a lot about really like being more analytical and, uh, you know, I've maybe showed him a little more about like, Playing, playing, for, playing for the good time. You know what I mean? Like, dude, bend that note, put some stank on it. You know what I mean? We've had a lot of fun recording ourselves in that way too, where, you know, we can kind of push each other. It's like, dude, it's about the performance. It's not always about playing it just right or, you know, vice versa. You know what I mean? Where it's got to be a little more like under the microscope, you know? So, uh, I, I think that's, that one's a good one. I, you know, they're all cool songs in their own right, but I think those two in particular just, um, Water's Edge for how much work went into making it a, a neat song. And then Legends and Tyrants, I think, for how um, fun and confident that song sounds compared to, you know, where we were coming from. I think that's where we, uh, excuse me, that's where we sort of like settled into uh, a groove with, all, with each other, you know?
0: Now, thinking about the pandemic, have you found any silver linings that make being a musician easier for yourself right now? Yes, actually, yeah. Um, it has in, in, a, in a way that
1: we're really bad at saying no to stuff. So we, um, you know, writing and, and, and getting, getting our stuff together for, you know, the next record and everything was really um, challenging because we said yes to a lot of gigs. You know, we had tours lined up for that summer. We were really like very busy. You know, especially considering everybody, everybody works. Everybody's got, you know, day jobs and side stuff we're trying to do. And, and you know, everybody's, everybody's, you know, they keep their plates very full, you know, myself included and the rest of the boys. But, um, you know, I think we when, when, the, when the pandemic hit, when the lockdown happened, we were just kind of like, all right, well, we're all at home. Nobody's working. We're still going to jam. We're going to figure it out. So we took that time and we wrote a bunch. You know, we were less than halfway into writing the, the, the new record by the time that happened and we, we you know turned out a bunch of songs and you know we threw things out we, we wrote so much that we had to throw things out that we didn't think was quite like cutting the mustard you know so that's really cool that we you know we had all that time we got a lot done we got we got caught up on all the stuff that we needed to get caught up on which I think is, is, is important because we were so nose to the grindstone with like especially playing a lot and you know, starting to dip our toes into being on the road and all that sort of stuff. It was really, really hard to give the writing time, you know, as much as a time as it needed. But now, you know, we, we got, we got a lot done. So um, it is getting to the point now where not playing shows uh, hurts real bad. While there is, you know, there's definitely a silver lining. I think we're excited to all get back on the road and hopefully eventually get out of the basement again get out of the studio and you know get back into it because there's so much more music man i I, you know i like i said we're so kind of far removed from where we were at when we were doing with the
0: part that it's like i I just want people to hear this new stuff what is your most cherished musical possession
1: um man you know I I, I, i got a bunch of cool stuff i got um I'm kind of a Pantera fanatic, so I've got a lot of, I've got a, you know, some signed stuff from, from Dime and, and Phil Anselmo and, and everything that I have tracked down. And, um, I've got a, uh, like I said before, a, a, a Dimebag amp. So that to me is very fun. I got a couple of guitars from some guys in bands that I think are rad. Um, I've got a, a great Fender Tele from, uh, this dude, Alex, who was in a band called Silver Snakes that are, are no longer around, but, um, I, I kind of browbeat him into selling it to me. Um, I've got a guitar from Andy Williams from every time I die, which is very cool. So that's, you know, I've got a, I've got a bunch of kind of neat memorabilia flowing around, you know, I've got some stuff signed from like Trent Reznor and, um, God, I got like so many old stubs. I got a bunch of like Devin Townsend memorabilia and all this kind of like fun, fun stuff. I've just kind of like, especially from my old job where I worked for a bunch of labels and everything, I I kind of amassed a bunch of like fun stuff. So, but the, uh, I think a lot of the, um, yeah, the guitars and the, and, and, and
0: the Pantera memorabilia
1: are definitely like
0: paramount, I think for me. What is your favorite urban legend or ghost story from Rhode Island?
1: Oh man. Um, this is fun because Rhode Island is, is, is such an old place. Um, it's kind of a spooky New England. If you've never been to New England, if you're listening to this, and you've never been. It's a lot of it's kind of spooky. These like sort of coastal, like, you know, Stephen King wrote all the stories about New England. Um, I don't know. The, the, uh, the main kind of urban legend that maybe people may know about is mercy Brown, the uh, the quote unquote, the vampire. Um, she, I forget exactly what happened. She was buried and came back to life for something, but they just didn't check to see if she was dead. But they call her a vampire. Um, you can go see her grave. It's out in the woods. There was a big uh, one of the houses has a big red neon cross on the lawn. Like as you're pulling into that neck of the woods, so it's if you go around Halloween, it's 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 eerie, even if you know it's kind of bogus. Also, I mean. It's be Lovecraft is from Providence. Um, so, you know, all of the, all of the stuff that comes with that, I think we, uh, you know, we as Southern New Englanders, especially kind of appreciate all of that kind of eeriness. And obviously, you know, we're close to Massachusetts. Well, I'll, I'll kind of, uh, if you've seen the, that movie, The Wit, that sort of like damp kind of overcast, you know, creepy colonial massachusetts sort of vibe is is you know that's not really manufactured for the movies it's kind of like that here so you know just the i think the overall uh, spookiness of our region is is uh is so fun you know i was born right around halloween too so this, this kind of stuff is fun for me so we're um, you know we love it this i think it's i think it lends a certain something to the music or i like to think it does anyway
0: would you like to go back to any questions
1: no, I think uh, I think that's I think that's exactly I think no I think we're good yeah just uh, keep an eye out you know we um, we have so much music to share you know look the part is very cool but I'm I'm even more excited about what's coming out um, you know hopefully we'll have something out this year uh, if not the entire record we'll definitely have something this year um, you will be one of the first to get it I can definitely say that I'll send you whatever. Whatever we have, as soon as it's done, uh, I will send it
0: your way. Final words.
1: Uh, buy a t-shirt.
0: <laughs> this has been an interview <laughs> with Mighty Fall guitarist Nick Simone on Sunday, May 2nd, 2021 by Nick Perkel.